We'll continue reading in 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'll pick up at verse 16. We're on page 259 of the church Bibles. 2 Samuel 6, 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Let's pray and ask for God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Father, we thank you that in your holiness, you still invite us to come before you to worship you this evening. You invite us not because of any inherent holiness in us, but because of the holiness of your son Jesus that you've given to us so that we might stand before you this evening with confidence even in the midst of our own sin. Help us as sinners now counted as holy before you because of the work of Jesus. Help us to hear your word with clarity, with understanding, and with joy. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Is he safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. C.S. Lewis's description of Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is a great summary of what this evening's text wants to show us about, a God, about God, even though we live in a world that tends to view him more as a cuddly hamster than as a fearsome lion, like we heard about this morning in our reading from Joel. Uh, we're jumping this evening right into the middle of the narrative of 1 and 2 Samuel, which revolves around the life of David, even though it starts with the lives of a couple of other men. 
Uh, here in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we have arrived after decades of exile and civil war, all the way from the halfway mark of 1 Samuel, we have arrived at a point when God's chosen King David, having gone through all these horrible things, has now finally, after years and years, he's finally ascended to the throne of a united Israel. Just before this story, in in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we hear all kinds of things about David's victories. We hear about military victories over the Philistines. He defeats them twice. And we also hear about him conquering the city of Jerusalem and then adopting it as his home and as his capital. So as we come to this story this evening, we come on the heels of the Lord giving David a series of great victories. And it's on the heels of those victories that David now wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant into his new home city, Jerusalem, because he wants God's presence to be at the very heart of his kingdom. If you're familiar with the Bible, you might remember that the Ark is a special gold-plated box where God promised to be present with his people in a special way. He had spoken to Moses from above this box, and this box contained the stone tablets upon which God himself had written the Ten Commandments. Uh, Once a year, Israel's high priest would go into a little room in a tent containing this box where he would pray for all of the people of Israel, sprinkling this box with sacrificial blood that would cleanse the people of Israel from all the ways that they had unintentionally broken God's commands that year. And so now at the beginning of the Samuel narrative, hundreds of years after the life of Moses, after this box has been constructed, at the very beginning of the Samuel narrative, at the beginning of 1 Samuel, 50 years before tonight's story, Israel had brought this special box out into battle as a good luck charm. But they suffered a disastrous defeat, and the ark was captured by the Philistines. The Philistines end up sending the box back, but since then, it's been collecting dust. And so as we now hear about David bringing this box out of some dusty archive back to where it belongs, he's bringing it back into the center of Israel's life, the text is inviting us to see three things about God. First, it invites us, isn't God great? Second, isn't God gracious? And finally, isn't God good? First thing it wants us to see and to feel is the greatness of God. The greatness of God. Look at verses 2 to 4. We hear about David's plan to bring the ark back into Jerusalem, and over and over again there, it was repeating God's name. The text is emphasizing God's character, emphasizing His nature. It's emphasizing that with this box, God Himself is uniquely present on earth. You see that most of all in verse 2. It says they're going to bring up the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. That means the two gold angels who are there on top of the box. So you see, it's not just that God is there, it's that God is enthroned as Yahweh of 
hosts, that means armies. God is the king ruling here on earth in the midst of his heavenly battalions. But in verse 3, we hear that they are carrying the ark on a new cart. Uh, This is supposed to raise some alarm bells for us. First of all, because it's not the first time in the story of Samuel that we've heard about the ark being put on a cart. Uh, The last time that this happened, decades before this story, the Philistines had taken the ark and put it on a cart when they sent it back to Israel after disaster falling on them for taking it. And so there's this clue here that Israel is dealing with this ark of God's holy presence in a Philistine kind of way. Now, the reason that this is such a problem, that may not sound like a very big problem to us, but the reason that this is such a problem is because God had specifically commanded Israel through Moses about how exactly they were to handle this uniquely holy piece of furniture. And not only was it never to be seen, it was always hidden, always covered somehow, except once a year when the high priest and the high priest alone would see it and stand before it. And not only was it never to be touched by anybody, but also it was only ever allowed to be moved in a certain way, only by a certain small group of men carrying it on long poles. And so there are some real problems here. They are transporting the ark in a Philistine kind of way. They are depending on animals to carry it rather than on priestly men doing as God commanded. And so as we hear this, it's a small little phrase there, but as we hear it, we're supposed to think, "Uh uh-oh, something's wrong here. We're supposed to be wondering what is going to happen because God has been trying to teach his people Israel that he takes his own holiness very seriously. But David and this massive crowd there in Jerusalem are celebrating. This is like a parade or a music festival. They are right to be excited about God's presence returning to them under the leadership of his chosen anointed king. Their hearts are in the right place. They have good motivations. But intentions and emotional excitement only get you so far. The oxen carrying this ark stumble. The ark then lurches to the side and this guy Uzzah reaches out and he grabs hold of it to keep it from falling to the ground. I mean, imagine how embarrassing it would be if the Ten Commandments themselves fell out into the mud. Uzzah means really well. But in verse 7, we hear this. It says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died beside the ark of God. You can imagine all the dancing there, all the music quickly dying out until there is nothing but stunned silence. It's pretty similar to what happened about six months ago when about 20 million people were watching an American football game And one of the players there collapsed right on the field in the middle of the first quarter. Except in this case, in 2 Samuel, there's no CPR. There's no ambulance there on the field. No one can resuscitate him. 
He's dead. At every moment, every one of us lives and breathes only by the merciful sustenance and permission of God. God is the ruler of every square inch of his creation. He rules over the exact length of our lives and the exact moment and manner of our deaths. Now, because he is the king, he is utterly serious about his holiness, his otherness. And so he's utterly serious about his creatures obeying his commands and about us heeding his warnings not to violate his holiness. It's good for God to be this way. If he weren't this way, he would be an evil God. As his creatures, one of the key lessons of the entire Bible is that humans must know and live in light of the truth that we are not God. We need to know our limits. We are never free to come up with our own ideas about how to approach God or how to honor him, no matter how much sense it makes to us, no matter how sincere our intentions, no matter how good it makes us feel. The ultimate question is not, how do I feel? But rather, who is God? What has he said? This is shocking and offensive in a world like ours. Maybe some of you this evening hear that and find that very offensive. But you can also see here that it was shocking and offensive in Israel's world too. Uh, In verse 8, you see that King David himself is angry with God when he does this. He says, how could you do this? I thought I was doing what you would want. It was all for you anyways. But in the midst of his anger at the Lord, David comes to fear the Lord, verse 9, which in the Bible is a good thing. You see, David was celebrating before the Lord, but he was not sober about the Lord. In his goodness, God cannot and will not let us forget that he is glorious and great as much as we might like to domesticate him into Fluffy the kitten, something small and manageable and entertaining, something that's there to make us feel good and to feel needed. As God's king, David needs to see the greatness of God But one of the key lessons of this story is that David also needs to see the grace of God. And that's the second thing that this text invites us to see. It first says, isn't God great? But then it also says, isn't God gracious? So David is frustrated and fearful, understandably. He doesn't know what to do with the ark, and so we're told literally that he steers it aside to somebody else's house. Someone else can deal with this. But then you hear in verse 11 that God immediately begins blessing this man who now has this ark somewhere in his house. God blesses this man's entire family just because the ark happens to be there with him. And when David hears about this, he understands. 
He understands that God's holiness does not mean that God wants to stay away from us. It does not mean that God wants to harm his people. David understands that instead, this great God wants to be present among his people to bless them, to help them. God has graciously provided a way for sinful and yet repentantly sober humans to live in his presence. That's what the ark and all of its bloody rituals have been about this whole time. God providing a way for people to be present with him. So verse 12, David tries again. He went and he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. You can see here that it's not that you have to choose between celebration and sobriety. But rather what you see here is that true lasting celebration in God comes through sobriety before God. David's renewed sense of reverence for the Lord is now seen in his obedience to the Lord. In verse 13, we hear now that the ark is being carried, just like God had commanded. And now there's also animal sacrifice, and there's a lot of it. It shows that David and Israel understand that they do not deserve to be in God's presence, no matter how good their intentions or how much fun they're having. And so every six steps on the way up this hill, David is leading the sacrifice of an ox and a fattened cow. Israel, with David as their leader, is embracing the gracious gift of God. God's willingness to accept animal death instead of human death, so that the humans can enter into his presence. As a foreshadowing of the final sacrifice of Jesus himself, the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament are not about humans coming up with some way to get to God, but actually they are about God graciously giving us a way to come to him. And so you see here that the people are gladly offering up their very best to the Lord. Uh, Some of us maybe here are connected with animals or farming, and maybe you understand a little bit what's going on here. Uh, But for them, animals were not just pets. This is their livelihood. These are very valuable things that they're giving up. They're giving their very best to the Lord. They're showing that they understand that He is the gracious giver of their very lives, and so He deserves everything they have, that they live only by His generous mercy. Uh, But for many modern people, maybe some of us, obedience and sacrifice are not the first two words that come to mind when we think about how to find real happiness, how to become truly joyful. Obedience and sacrifice, it's like eating your veg. Here you see that David and the people are truly and really enjoying God's presence. They're back to celebration. Uh, We're again back to this music festival. It's like the Jerusalem Fringe Festival or something that's going on there. And so in verse 14, you get this wonderful picture of David just having the time of his life before the Lord. It says that he danced before the Lord 
with all his might. Uh, there was a word used here that means something like twirling around. David's wearing a simple linen robe that would normally be worn by the priests. At very special times in Israel's history, the king himself would sometimes officiate as a kind of priest. In verse 17, you hear that once the ark arrives, David offers up even more sacrifices. We hear about burnt offerings. Uh, These are a kind of sacrifice that symbolize total dedication to God because you burn up the entire animal. And then we also hear that David is offering what are called peace offerings. This is another kind of sacrifice that symbolizes friendship with God and with his people. You only give some of it to God and the rest of it you get to eat with your family and your friends. The point is that God is graciously providing his people with a way to find real and eternal joy in his presence. And that the way he does that is by giving them a priest king who leads them in worship, who offers sacrifice on their behalf. David, of course, is pointing us forward to Jesus. Jesus is the great and the final priest king who comes from the joy of God's presence in heaven in order to lead us back into that joy in heaven with God forever. And so the text invites us, isn't God great? And then it shows us through this second and successful attempt to bring the ark into Jerusalem, isn't God gracious? But then finally, it invites us to see, isn't God good? It wants us to see this evening the goodness of God. In verse 18, you hear that after David finishes offering all these sacrifices, he blesses the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. He distributes among all the people, the whole multitude, men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one, in case we haven't missed the point. Then it says that everybody departs, everyone goes home. The chapter begins with an emphasis on God's glorious name as it described the Ark of the Covenant for us. But now we see David blessing the people, and it tells us that he's doing it in God's name. We were made to live under God's king so that we could enjoy God's blessing. God is good, and so he always does what's good, and he gives what's good. You see that in how David is doling out all kinds of rich food for everybody who's there, thousands of people. David is the host of a huge barbecue. He's giving meat out to all his friends, all his guests, big slabs. He gives out raisin cakes too, we are told, uh, which when you look at where they show up in the rest of the Bible, in the ancient world, we understand that raisin cakes have something to do with fertility. Uh, This is something like an aphrodisiac in the ancient world. And so there's a little bit of a wink-wink to us here as David is giving everyone raisin cakes as they head home after the big mega party. Uh, It's an underscoring for us the goodness of God in this world that he's made and in the relationships he's given us. And the goodness of our great and gracious God should cause us to rejoice like David did. But the story ends tragically as it shows us that not everybody was celebrating. Uh, It began, the whole story begins with this warning about celebrating without sobriety. But it ends with a warning about sobriety without celebration. 
David, the dancing king, has been blessing all the families of Israel. Uh, But now in verse 20, we hear that he goes home to bless his own family. He's loaded up with big cuts of meat, a bunch of raisin cakes. He's going home to see his wife. Uh, You've already heard in verse 16 that his wife, Michael, was looking out from the top floors of her house upon this parade, uh, filled with disdain for her husband because of how exuberantly he's leaping and twirling about. But now, when he pulls into the driveway, she storms out the front door, and she sarcastically sneers at him. She says, how the king of Israel has honored himself today. She's been watching him twirling around in his robe. She says, you've been exposing yourself to the local girls like Bertie Wooster and his friends on boat race night. She expected David to be so much more dignified, to look and to act so much more impressive. Because you see, joyfully celebrating God, joyfully celebrating his goodness, actively and joyfully participating in worship, it can look pretty ridiculous to a lot of people. Uh, There is, it's true, there is a danger in some quarters of the church. There is a great danger of emphasizing celebration at the expense of sobriety. Uh, There are so many churches that are so sentimental and so shallow, built around superficial emotions and gestures. That's a real danger. But particularly in our own tradition, our own corner of God's church, there is also a danger of forgetting that sobriety is really a means to celebration. Are we joyful when we worship God? Do our words and our thoughts and our emotions, perhaps even our bodies, do they all show it? For some of us, uh, even just singing out loud might as well be twirling around in an ephod. I realize that I'm not only speaking to uh, many Presbyterians, I'm not only speaking to many British Presbyterians, but I'm even speaking to some Scottish Presbyterians. Uh, It is cultural how you express joy, but the question remains, are you joyful? Some of us need to be reminded that knowing God and worshiping God should be joyful, even visibly so. You can ask yourself, uh, if a a random visitor came to this church or came into my home for a meal and they looked at me and they listened to me and they talked with me, uh, would they come away thinking, even if they don't agree, would they come away thinking, those people have something to be happy about? There's a lot of uh, sad, morose, discouraged angry people in the world. There are good reasons to be sad and to be angry, but beneath it all, the Christian should be joyful. David is more than happy to look foolish to Michael and to those like her. He says in verse 21, he says, I was not twirling around celebrating so that other people could see me. He says, I was doing it for the Lord. I was in his presence. I will continue to celebrate before him. He says, I will make myself even more contemptible than this. 
He says, I'll be lowly in your eyes, and I don't care. It's not that we should look silly for the sake of looking silly. It's not that uh, we should just try to be authentic for the sake of being authentic. That's really popular in America. I don't know if that's very popular here. But rather, it's that in a world filled with people who are avoiding God, in a world filled with people who are escaping from God, those who enjoy worshiping him, those who see his goodness, those who gladly follow God's commands and sacrifice their best for him, those kind of people are going to look ridiculous. They're going to look extreme and stupid and fanatical. But what matters most is that we're in God's presence, that we enjoy his goodness and his grace. And just like the people of Israel did, we find and enjoy God's goodness most of all through his anointed king, through King Jesus. Jesus was the lowly king. He was so ridiculous and so offensive in the eyes of the world that they crucified him. And at the same time, he was so committed to God that he offered up the great and the final sacrifice himself. He offered up this great and final sacrifice on behalf of his people, on behalf of us, so that he could lead us into the blessing of God's presence, so that he could lead us in the victory parade of his resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all the ways that you have shown us your goodness, not just in your creation, but most of all, in the ways that you have redeemed and rescued us through your priest king, Jesus. Forgive us for the ways that we've been morose, the ways that we have been discouraged in the face of your goodness and the things that should cause us to rejoice. Lord, many of us do have good reasons to be sad and to lament and to mourn our health, the state of the world, our relationships, disappointments and frustrations and sufferings. You don't call us to forget the sadness of these things, but Lord, we do ask that you would give us a joy even in the midst of our sadness. And I pray for this church, Lord, that this would be a people known and seen for their joy even as it makes them and us look ridiculous in the eyes of the world. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.